Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kaveh. And we're two gastroenterologists. What's a gastroenterologist? You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system. Say what? You know, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now? Your butt, Joe. It's your butt. Oh. Hey, everyone. We just want to say that we know COVID-19 is on everyone's mind and causing fear. There is so much that is not known and it feels like our leadership is fumbling. Hopefully we are now heading in the right direction. We want to remind everyone to take a deep breath and appreciate your health. Please remember to avoid big crowds, wash your hands with soap and water or an alcohol-based wash. Be smart and be safe. Today's interview is about a different public health crisis that we can learn from. Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha represents what it means to believe in good science, common sense, and urgency. She is a pediatrician and a researcher who helped to expose the toxic lead that was in the water and poisoning the children of Flint, Michigan. And more important, she has acted as a public health advocate, even when it didn't help her personal goals. We need people like Dr. Mona leading the containment of and fight against corona. We can learn from her story, and hopefully you will take away something that we can all agree on that protecting our health and the health of those around us should be the most important priority during a pandemic and every other day. Stay tuned. And welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kavi. I'm Lizzie. <laughs> that is more like it. Did you like that one? I did. I did. Because when you're mellow, it like freaks me out and I'm worried about you when you're all like, Pe and welcome back. Yeah. Like people don't like my NPR sort of like yeah. fresh air voice. Like, yeah. They, it doesn't. And admittedly, it's not really who I am that much, but I can't always be at an eight or a nine. Sometimes no. I'm like at a five and that's okay. And with us, you can be comfortable. You can be yourself. Yeah. I thought, I didn't think of it as your NPR voice. I think of it as you impersonating Joe voice because he's all like constantly mellow he does he is the more mellow of us like, yeah 
I notice episodes when I listen to them where it's just you and me talking. Yeah. Like it's much faster. Right. There's a l- <laughs> Right. And this is why Joe needs to like adjust levels all the time after because you and I are all like, what? How much caffeine can we put in our mouths in one, in one episode? And Joe's all like, hey guys, I forgot the question. Can we, can we start over? <laughs> Just so you know, we haven't talked about Joe's herpes in a while. I think we're going to have to bring that up in the next few weeks. I know. We'll wait till he gets here. Yeah. Um, he doesn't have herpes. Anyways, not that we know of. Uh, so we have a really cool guest coming up, um, and we should get to it because there is a lot to discuss with Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. Um, she is a, a pediatrician and a researcher, and she is the doctor that's really responsible for blowing the lid off of the whole Flint water crisis. So... I mean, if you haven't already heard of her, you will. I'm sure at some point there's going to be a movie made of her. She's like our generation's Erin Brockovich or something. Yeah. So, so uh, stay tuned. It's a really great episode. And if you want to contact us, remember, find us at Twitter at The House of Pod. Find us on Facebook and uh, find us at hopquestions at gmail.com or call us at 408-444-6623. We have stickers. If you want them, please let us know. We will send them to you. Uh, if you haven't already, like us uh, and subscribe uh, to whatever listening device or channel you use. If it's iTunes, leave a review. Anything else? No, that covered it. Great job. Sweet. On today's show, we have Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha a pediatrician, researcher, and public health advocate whose work has helped to expose the Flint water crisis, I think was really at the heart of exposing the Flint water crisis. She's still working to help fix that uh, situation in Detroit that's caused by these dangerously high levels of lead in the water. Dr. Mona, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Kavai. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Um, we tell us a little bit about your background? Um, uh, just kind of your parents are, um, I read, were from, are from Iraq, and then you moved mm-hmm. to England and Michigan. How did you, how did that journey kind of get you to Michigan and to Flint, Michigan specifically? Yeah, I mean, it was, it's all by accident. So I wasn't supposed to be in this country. Uh, so I'm an immigrant, came to this country when I was four. Uh, my family's Iraqi American. We came to this country for really what all immigrants come to this country for, for opportunity and democracy and freedom and, and that American dream. And that was absolutely realized for me and my family. Um, and I woke up every day lucky to be in this country, um, but also acutely aware of what injustice can be, uh, what people in power can do to vulnerable populations. And, and I think it was that kind of sense and that that those values that those immigrant values that were driven into me of of service of, of justice um, that pushed me to go into medicine and, and pushed me to to end up being in Flint and serving as a pediatrician. Yeah, yeah. the immigrants rock. We're all yeah. for them here. <laughs> yeah, um, immigrants get the job done. That's right. <laughs> I haven't seen Hamilton yet, but I'm assuming that's a oh Hamilton thing. Oh my goodness! Thing. Oh my God! I know. I'm being judged. I feel so judged. I'm working it's on it. In San Francisco. I know. Like- I know. I know. Let's fast forward then to 2015, but you were the first person to expose that the blood levels in children had doubled in Flint because of this switch from the Detroit River, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, where the water used to come from, and it was switched to the Flint River. And because of this switch, and we'll get to the reasons why that was done, 
you start to notice that lead levels were doubling in children. Is is that correct? Yeah, a little bit. So yeah, mostly. Um, but uh, the water that we had been getting in Flint was from the Great Lakes. So Michigan is the mitten state. We are absolutely surrounded by fresh water. It's the largest source of fresh water in the world is, is around Michigan and around Flint. And for half a century, we were buying our water from Detroit, but it was coming from the Great Lakes. So not the Detroit River, but the Great Lakes. Um, and then in 2014, kind of in a move driven by austerity, our water source was was switched from the Great Lakes to the Flint River. Uh, the Flint River water wasn't being treated properly. It was missing this kind of critical ingredient, which I had never heard of as a doctor, but now I'm, I feel like I should get an honor degree about, um, called corrosion control. And without that ingredient, our water was about 20 times more corrosive than the water that we had been getting from the Great Lakes. Um, and that corrosive water, that untreated corrosive water, um, for 18 months, kind of ate up our pipes, our infrastructure, which is predominantly lead-based, and the lead kind of leached out of our pipes and into our drinking water, and ultimately into the bodies of our children. Um, as a pediatrician in Flint, as an academic, um, as a residency director, I was seeing patients who were coming in with, um, with lots of concerns about the water. Um, the people in Flint definitely knew something was wrong. Um, there was concerns about color and odor and taste and red flags after red flags. And throughout this period, there was lots of reassurance by government that everything was okay. Um, you know, there was bacteria advisories and then people were like, oh, boil your water. We'll just add more chlorine. And then so much chlorine was added, it created a buildup of a carcinogen because of so much chlorine. But they're like, oh, everything's okay. And then they, then they found out that the, um, the corrosive water was actually eating up engine parts at a General Motors plant. And General Motors was allowed to go back to Great Lakes water and throughout, the people of Flint were told that everything was okay. And me, as a pediatrician practicing in Flint, um, was also telling my patients that everything was was okay because all these government officials and scientists were saying everything that was okay. That's amazing. Right. It's amazing to think that like the the factory making car parts were yeah. like, oh, this is not safe for cars. Yeah. <laughs> the people can still have it, but the cars not so much. You can correct me on this one, but... This all started because Flint, they had to have these emergency managers come in to take over sort of the city, right? Uh, like the mm -hmm. mayors and all the elected officials sort of lost control. And then these sort of emergency managers came in who are making these decisions based on sort of no accountability to the public. Am I reading that correctly? Absolutely. Absolutely. So... Um, the crisis was, was born out of a loss of democracy. Um, the emergency managers were appointed by the governor. Um, they had no accountability. They were unelected. Um, and all their decisions were driven by, by saving dollars. So there was a political crisis, and that, that led to kind of an economic, cost-cutting, bad decision-making. Yeah, and it was really, um, you know, when I... When I talk about the water crisis, especially in my book, I, there's a lot of history that's included. The water crisis, the political crisis, the economic crisis didn't happen overnight. It really took decades in the making. Um, and it's something that I teach my kind of medical students and my residents and something that I was taught that we really have to know the history of the places that we're privileged to serve in. Um, because a lot of the, the things that we are treating, um, be it diabetes or asthma or obesity or you know whatever disparities, these things didn't just kind of present to our clinic that day. Um, they've really been kind of 
um, in the making for quite some time. Um, and just like this crisis, like it really started with um, decades of disinvestment, um, plants closing, unemployment, mm -hmm. poverty, redlining, blockbusting, racism, greed, income inequality, and kind of the list goes on and on yeah. um, mm -hmm. that really kind of set up this situation where democracy was taken away um, and where these kind of austerity-driven policies were put into place that created the situation. It could have been predicted when you understood the history. Yeah. I mean, if anyone wants to see an extreme version of Reality of Flint, probably see Roger and me from probably yeah. 30 years ago, Michael Moore's yeah. film about Moore, Flint, yeah. Michigan. Yeah. But um, yeah. so can you tell us, you know, you said patients were coming to you. Is that what made you you were just curious and investigated or did people actually have symptoms or did they just come to you and say, you know, Mona, my kid's been drinking brown water. Can you make sure the kid's okay? Yeah. That, I, that, thank you for asking that question. I, I love that question. Um, and that's something um, that is so critical to the story because it had nothing to do with what I was seeing in my patients. Um, so the title of my book is actually what the eyes don't see. Um, we don't see lead in water. Kind of that colored water was from iron corrosion, creating rusty colored water. Yeah. Um, but lead exposure is well known in pediatrics and public health as a silent pediatric epidemic. Um, I wish patients would present um, to clinic like it was like glow in the dark purple spots <laughs> when they had lead exposure. Yeah. Um, but they don't. Yeah. Um, it is. It's invisible. It, it's um, it is a gap from when you when you have exposure to the presentation of symptoms, which are things like you know drop in cognition and attention problems, focusing problems. And then by the time that child has those symptoms and exposure, you know symptoms and, and signs, the exposure was years prior. Um, so the what kind of really helped me realize what was going on was a random um, dinner party with a high school girlfriend. Um, so a big lesson of my story is make friends with folks who are outside of your specialties <laughs> or right. outside of your disciplines. Yeah. In medicine, we become hyper-specialized and we tend to only hang out with folks who are, who are just like us. And by pure randomness, a high school girlfriend um, came over for a last minute barbecue at the in, in the summer of 2015 um, we were chatting, and my high school girlfriend, of all things, is a drinking water expert, formerly at the EPA, um, you know, who was at the EPA uh, over a decade ago when Washington, D.C. had a very similar lead and water crisis. Um, and in my kitchen, glass of wine in our hands, um, she's the one that told me that the water wasn't being treated properly in Flint, and because of that, there would be lead in the water. Um, and that was the very first time I heard the word lead. I'd heard about the color and the odor and the taste and the bacteria and all these different things. But that was the first time I heard the word lead. Yeah. Um, and that's what prompted me to do um, the research to see what was happening with our children's lead levels. Um, and this is where I really credit my kind of training and background in public health because I was able to take this population level perspective. Um, I'm just one doctor in one clinic in Flint. Like I can tell you, about lead levels in my patients, but I can't tell you what's happening at a population level. Um, so you really need that lens to be able to step back and to see right. kind of what, what those trends were. Yeah. And I know this is probably pretty basic for for most of the doctors that listen to our show. Maybe not. They need to hear it too. But for the non-doctors, can you tell us what the dangers of lead in the water is? We know, we know that the kids don't turn neon, like you said, which... Which would be helpful, yeah. but like the yeah. subtle clues, I guess. 
Yeah, so lead um, is probably one of the oldest and most well-studied poisons. Um, we've known what lead has done really for centuries. Um, this, this actually this last summer, uh, I went to Pompeii, Italy, and there's perfectly preserved lead pipes. Um, and there's the strong theory that the, hyp the hypothesized the demise of the Romans is because um, they were exposed to so much lead. Not only did they use it in their plumbing, um, but lead was also put in, in their food as like a salt and, and a sweetener. Um, so we've, we've, we've known about lead's toxicity for, for quite some time. Um, and over the last few decades, um, incredible science has got us to the point of recognizing that there is no safe level of lead. Levels we thought were okay decades ago when industry put lead in gasoline and paint and plumbing, we now know are, are not okay uh, because of what it does, especially to developing brains. It drops children's IQ levels and impacts cognition. It impacts behavior and development, leading to things like developmental delays, attention disorders, focusing problems. It's even been linked to things like violent behavior, behavior oppositional defiant disorder, and even to criminality. Uh, we also know about increasingly about the epigenetics of lead, how it, how the transmission of lead exposure can affect future generations. Um, so because of this incredible science, uh, we know that there's no safe level and that we are supposed to practice something called primary prevention, which in public health means that children are never supposed to be exposed to lead, that our focus really should be finding lead in the environment rather than continuing to use the blood of our children as detectors of environmental contamination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you get this information that shows that there is these increased lead levels. And then you have a press conference. Um, and at this time, you you had the data, you had this information, but it, had, it wasn't um, peer reviewed. It wasn't in a journal, right? Did you get a lot of pushback when <laughs> when that happened? And did you get criticism specifically for that aspect of it? Well, because, yes. because for our listeners, I mean, normally, I guess when we hear about stuff, it's through the media, but it's probably already right. been vetted by Absolutely. your peers, by in these journals that, you know, normal people don't read, you know, New England Journal of right. Medicine, the Journal of Pu um, Public Health, right? I think that's where this, your first article yeah. was published. And yeah. then, you know, then, then there's a press conference. So you kind of... Yeah. Did that for, you did a backwards order, right? Yeah. Well, I, we had no choice. Um, so that peer review process, which is critical, which has been around for uh, really centuries, where your, your peers look at your work and uh, critique it, um, that process takes a long time, uh, months, sometimes years to get something through that peer review process. And, and when we found out our research and we had checked and double checked and triple checked and ran it a bazillion different kind of ways because of paranoia um, and, and being OCD scientists um, and doctors, we, um, we, knew, we knew it was right, but, but we, didn't, we couldn't afford that time, that luxury mm -hmm. of time to go through that process. Um, so what, what we did was kind of a, a, an act of academic disobedience. Um, and, and I literally kind of walked out of my clinic with my white coat on and and stood up in our hospital conference room um, at a press conference and, and shared these research findings and, and demanded action. Um, even though it, it hadn't gone through that peer review process, um, everything I did and I continue to do is, is definitely part of my job, my responsibility, my role as a physician. Uh, one of the reasons I went into medicine and specifically pediatrics is um, the job of being an advocate. Like, you know, we wear many hats and it's not like we all have to wear these hats, but the hats that we can wear 
are those as a clinician, as a researcher, as an educator, but also very much as an advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also one of the reasons I went back and got my public health degree in health policy, because I wanted to be able to not only treat that patient in front of me, but to try to address the upstream issues that, that you know, force a lot of these ailments in our patients. Did you get um, a lot of pushback from your institution, your bosses? Did you feel like your career was maybe um, threatened at the time that you kind of just went straight yeah. to the media? Was that an issue for you? Yeah. So you'll have to definitely get all the dramatic details in my book. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was, um, um, you know, I had just gotten a Fitbit right before um, this all happened. And when I released this research and began to get pushback from the state uh, and every arm of the state. And I even tried to prepare myself that this would happen. Um, My heart rate was close to 200. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was, you know, physically um, tachycardic. I was anxious. I felt sick. I began to second guess myself. I also began to tell myself like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe I should have just stayed quiet. Maybe I should not have um, you know, looked at this, maybe this wasn't my job, maybe somebody else was going to do this. Um, you know, maybe, you know, I shouldn't have gone public. So I, I also very much began um, to, to think that, you know, that this was a bad idea. Um, yeah. And, and fortunately, and, and quite quickly, um, you know, the, the numbers in my research, it was a realization that, that this had nothing to do with me and that these numbers and statistics and p-values and what have you, every single one represented a child, um, a child as a physician, like I have literally taken an oath to stand up for and fight for. Um, so it was as if those kids like jumped out of my spreadsheets and lifted me up and gave me the courage um, to keep going. And we fought back with more numbers and more science and more evidence and, and more data. And, and finally, through our teamwork and um, our persistence, um, the state conceded. I want the resources and the interventions to make sure that our kids not only recover and thrive from this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think the science has been really clear. This, you know, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is not just to, you know, just and one of the reasons I love sharing the story is not just to share kind of the story about this crazy thing that happened to Flint, but really to bring home some of the kind of the bigger lessons. And one of that is is what happens when we deny science. Yeah. Yeah. So the story of Flint is a story of just common sense science being denied, like basic water treatment, um, attacking science, attacking scientists. And and this is what happens when we deny science. But it's also this really powerful story of what happens when science and scientists come out of their ivory towers, when we come out of our classrooms and our hospitals and and we 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 speak our science and when we work hand in hand with the communities that we are privileged to serve. Mm-hmm. Um so not only is the story of this you know, what happens when you deny science, but it also is such an important story, especially for doctors. You know, so many of us went into medicine because we want to help people. Yet, obviously, so much, so many of us have gotten jaded over time. Um, but let this story serve as an example of really the power of our voice. Yeah. Um, you know, the doctor in the story never should. I never should have had to do what I what I did. Um, so many people were raising red flags. Um, but it was finally when that doctor spoke that, that things finally started to happen. Um, so let it serve as a reminder that as, a phys- as physicians, we have this really credible, powerful voice in our communities, and people are waiting to hear from us. Yeah, I think it's a great example. You know, people or a lot of doctors hear research, and you think of yeah. like the lab and rats and stuff like this, and it's a great way for you to have done this and actually apply it to a human being kind of immediately. Um 
And then your pup, and that obviously catapulted, I think, into more pediatric public health initiatives. So is that something that you got into mostly after? Or um, do you want to tell us about the Flint Kids Fund? Yeah, so in the same kind of speed and around the clock urgency that we had to uncover this crisis is the same speed that has continued um, to mitigate the impact of this crisis and into and to improve kind of the health and development of Flint kids and really kids kind of beyond beyond the story. Um, so I founded and directed this a pediatric public health initiative, which is which is based in Flint, and we work with many of our community partners, including amazing Flint kids and Flint parents, um, to put into place the the science based interventions to to make sure that our kids turn out okay. So once again, it's a story of science being denied, science speaking truth to power, but also really leaning on the incredible science of child development and brain plasticity and resilience um, to mitigate the impacts of, of this crisis. We're also hoping that kind of what we do in Flint um, has the ability to, to shine a light on other communities. And we've already seen that. There's been so many positive ripple effects of the Flint story uh, to really kind of raise the nation's consciousness on on issues of, for example, drinking water and environmental injustices and infrastructure and democracy um, and and the respect for science, um, but also speaks very much to kind of the condition of children everywhere. And, and this, as a pediatrician, this is kind of what keeps me up at night um, because just like Flint kids, there's kids all over this country that wake up to some of those same nightmares as Flint kids, be it overwhelming poverty or environmental contamination or lost democracy or stolen opportunity, these same situations that make it impossible for these kids to really um, to get ahead. Um, well, you don't know yet, um, but our, we have a third co-host with us, Joe. He's not a doctor, um, and he left us a voicemail because he was really excited oh. that you were going to be with us today, but he just couldn't make it. So, you know, these are these are gems. Joe is... Um, He's our genius, but also has really low points. <laughs> He's our greatest highlights of the show and our lowest as well. So oh. sometimes he forgets the question in the middle, but we have him on voicemail <laughs> now. So if it's okay, we're going to play it for you. Yeah. Uh, actually, he, he he called and left a couple of voicemails oh. Oh. Uh, for you. So we're just gonna, awesome. we'll pick maybe just two of them. Okay, I'll play it for you and uh, we'll get your response. Hi, Mona. Uh, this is Joe. I've got a question for you. Uh, in my opinion, you know, our country seems to be very soft on crime, uh, especially related to product safety in general, it seems like. Whether it be in this situation or others where you have leaders putting humans in harm's way purposely for some other motive, some usually due to money. What do you feel should happen to the local officials in Flint, Michigan, responsible for all this? And do you feel stricter laws, including criminal prosecution, should serve as a deterrent in the future in these types of situations? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, did you hear that? Yeah. So Joe has a great question about accountability. Um, and, and that is so critically important. And often when people ask me these kind of questions, I would defer. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm not a prosecutor. Um, but then I've really come to realize that this concept of restorative justice is so critical for healing. Um, because without that accountability and without that justice, um, it's very, the trauma is real and it is raw and it is every day. Um, so in Flint, um, that is, that's critical. It hasn't completely happened yet. Uh, nobody's gone to jail yet for um, the crimes that were conducted. There have been criminal investigations. People have lost their jobs. There's been many investigations from the EPA, the Civil Rights Commission, to what have you. 
Um, but the, the criminal lawsuits and the civil lawsuits are still to this day ongoing. Um, but it, it's critically, critically important. And Joe mentioned local officials. This was not a local issue. This was a state and federal problem. Um, so the, the crux of the blame lies at the state level because we were under state control with emergency management. Um, but also part of the blame is, is with the EPA. And an EPA inspector general report actually said that the EPA should have acted seven to nine months sooner um, yeah. based on what they knew. Good job, Joe. That's a good question. All right, let's see if we can go two for two with Joe. That was awesome. <laughs> oh, hi, Mona. This is Joe. Uh, I'm totally blown away by the story in Flint, Michigan. I've got a question for you regarding the, some of the statistics. Um, I read it was estimated that between six and 12,000 children were exposed to excess levels of lead in the water supply in Flint. What does this mean for these children health-wise, and have there been any follow-up statistics on this group regarding their current health conditions? Are these folks experiencing health issues related to lead poisoning right now? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay, for, first of all, Joe did the, oh, oh, hi, how weird, I'm making a phone call thing. And hey, then, hey, it's me calling into my show. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> these questions are so good, I'm pretty certain somebody else wrote them for him. That second one is amazing. That, was a, <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> this is I love this guy. <laughs> funny is going on. Uh, sorry, so did you hear that one as well? Yes. Um, yeah, Joe is brilliant. Yeah, um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes he is. <laughs> yeah. He must have really good ghostwriters. Yeah. So um, he, he, so everybody who w- drank this water um, was exposed <sighs> to the crisis. So our denominator of exposure is about 150,000 people. Those are the people that lived in Flint, went to school in Flint, worked in Flint, went to daycare in Flint. Um, and it is that population that is actually being tracked over time. Uh, so we have been funded by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, to um, to build a Flint registry. Uh, so this is modeled after other large-scale registries like the World Trade Center registry, which has been following folks over time. Um, our Flint registry launched earlier this year. We've already gotten um, several thousand people um, enrolled. Uh, there's uh, surveys they take to see how they're doing, how their health is, how their development is. Um, but unlike other registries that are just kind of tracking people and sharing that research, um, this is a public health registry, which means once we find out how people are doing, they then get connected to the to the interventions to, to mitigate the impact of the crisis. Uh, for example, uh, if it's a child, we then refer them to, for example, early education and literacy support and child care and healthcare access. Um, so that is the beauty of this registry, which is launched. It's not just about tracking folks over time, um, but it's really about making sure that we do not see those consequences that we already know um, that through clear science that, that led does. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, let me, I have one more question for you. Uh, you've mm-hmm. been really generous with your time. I really appreciate it. You testified in front of congress twice now uh-huh mm-hmm. what was that experience like <laughs> mm-hmm. um it was fun uh i fun. i have it was fun so wait I testified wait in what, front it, of the, <laughs> what, what did your fitbit register your heart rate <laughs> during that testimony um, so you know i have been on the phone and, and testified with, with policymakers um, continuously. Um, I have been in front of media. Um, you know, at one point there was days where I had like 16 interviews a day. Um, and, you know, nothing can prepare you for this. But what I try to share with other physicians 
is is try try to be prepared. Um, so I was blessed, for example, in my training uh, in pediatrics to have had things like advocacy training. So it wasn't the first time that I talked to a legislator. Um, every year I take my pediatric residents um, to the state capitol and we meet with our local state legislators about whatever bills may be uh, you know, in play that session regarding things that affect children's health. But before we go and meet with legislators, we do things like advocacy training. We do role playing. I pretend I'm the legislator and my resident talks to me and they get their nerves out um, and they realize, hey, they're just a regular person. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition, in my kind of doctor training, I've, I've had things like media training, like whenever the hospital said, hey, who wants to talk about, you know, the importance of flu vaccines? I'm like, oh, I'll do it. Like, yeah, it's scary. and It's weird, but I'll try. Mm -hmm. um, so, so take take advantage of those opportunities. Do things like podcasts and really yeah. cool interviews. Well, it seems um, like a little bit of a jump from this to, to going in front of Congress, but sure, I feel ready. I think it's the same. <laughs> no, I mean, and it just I mean, it's just practice and practice and practice, and and especially as physicians, like you, we are experts. Like we are an expert in our discipline. Um, right. We, you know, that sense of imposter syndrome never goes away. Um, but just as if you know, when we're in the room with a patient like we have to exude kind of confidence in, in what we know right. and what we can impart i think so much of the situation that we're in in terms of kind of science denial and vaccine denial and what have you is because you know we we as scientists and doctors don't go into the halls of of congress yeah um, or other important places and, and communicate what our science and medicine is all about yeah um so kind of that's another critical lesson or story um, and especially my story is that we, we have to be prepared and we have to do more of this um, so people can understand the importance. Yeah. Doctors have to be better advocates and get more politically active. That's totally. Yes, and people, absolutely. people do listen to doctors. Um, and then and you know, we, with, have to, we have to do things like this and we have to not only write for, you know, journals that five people read, but we also have to write like op-eds in our local papers and, right. uh, to, you know, reach other audiences. Right. That's what we're trying to do with this podcast. And I do think yeah. that the podcast is very similar to testifying in front of Congress, except there are fewer white guys in suits here with us today. So... <laughs> We really and, uh, and I can and I can be in my pajamas right now. You right. know, <laughs> you probably are. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your dedication and being so relentless for your patients and the kids and the people privilege. of uh, Flint and the repercussions it has across the nation. Um, so, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you to both of you. It's been a pleasure. Oh, one last thing. Where can people find the book? Where can people get the book? What What the Eyes Don't See, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. Yes, it is available anywhere. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. All anecdotes and patient-related details have been changed with respect to date, sex, and certain details so that patient identification is not possible.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.